Know your enemies and know your friends. A study of the book of Hebrews. When is getting close not enough? You could probably think of a hundred examples. If you have to catch a plane but you show up five minutes too late, you were really close to catching that plane, but if it's taking off at the moment, close matters nothing. Maybe you recall, uh, I don't know if the word evil can evil means anything to you, but uh, he would try to jump things like long distances. If you could imagine someone trying to jump the Grand Canyon and they get like almost all the way, but not all the way, you'd say, well, like that doesn't make a lot of difference if you landed 100 feet from the edge or you landed five feet from the edge. Close is not good enough. In the words of God that we're going to consider for today, there's a big point not on being close, but on actually crossing the finish line, reaching your goal. That, that as a, a Christian, what is most important of all is to arrive, to reach the goal. To We'll talk about exactly what we have in mind there when we think about reaching the goal, but that is a huge focus. Something that doesn't succeed in getting you to where you need to be, as close as it might appear, but then the one thing that gives you success in arriving at where you need to be. We're going to start off in Hebrews chapter 7. Now Hebrews chapter 7 introduces the name of someone that we've talked about a while back, the name Melchizedek. Now you might remember from last time that the big spiritual issue that Christians were struggling with, and the writer to the Hebrews brings this out into the open, is that they were not mature. Uh, they had not properly uh, moved forward in their faith. And last time we talked about how, like, okay, so what would constitute maturity? What would constitute moving forward in your faith? And for those of you who are Christians, you might be thinking, well, um, that would mean, like, you're a lot more active in uh, being a, a godly uh, servant in your community, about being kind to other people, about using your time for God's glory. You might think about a lot of actions or activities, and that is evidence that I have matured in my faith. In fact, however, the writer to the Hebrews, right before he calls them out on their immaturity, he says, um, what I'm really looking forward to telling you about is Melchizedek. This is at the heart of everything, but I can't tell you about him because you are falling short with regard to your maturity. In fact, what was Christian maturity? The writer to the Hebrews speaks about things like patience and faith and hope, expectation for the future, eternal expectation that is planted firmly. It's like an anchor in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That because Jesus went into that most holy place with his own blood so that our sin has all been forgiven. We have a firm and confident future waiting for us so that we go ups and downs in life, but we've got an anchor that is keeping us in, in place, and that's it, it is in the forgiveness that Christ has won for us. Like that is the ultimate in maturity. So when we get now, after having brought this to his reader's attention, that they were struggling in spiritual maturity, but here's the essence of spiritual maturity. Now we are going to, he's finally going to talk about Melchizedek, which he said he couldn't talk about because they weren't ready for it. But now that he's addressed their, their, their lacks, now he is ready to speak 
about Melchizedek. Now, do we just start reading? We could just start reading in Hebrews chapter 7, but if I were to ask you, think of Abraham and Lot. What Bible stories come to mind? Well, you might think when you hear Lot about the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, you might think about Abraham and Lot trying to decide who got to live where, and Abraham says, you can take the first pick, right? Would you think about four kings? So four kings attacked the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot got taken off into captivity. So Abraham hears about this, and with his private army of somewhat over 300 men, he goes out and chases these kings down, and he attacks them. God blesses his military assault. Lot is set free. Abraham comes back with all of this stuff that he has gained from the kings. And as he is getting close to the city of Jerusalem, a man comes out from Jerusalem and blesses him. And then Abraham gives 10% of everything that he had gained to this individual who was a priest. This priest's name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, how could that be? Um, a believing priest, a, like representative of the true God in the land of Canaan, which was full of people who did not love God? How could that have happened? Well, we know that after the flood, everybody knew about the true God, and certainly many drifted away, but apparently there were some who remained faithful to the true God. And so Abraham ran into one of those individuals, this Melchizedek, who blessed him and received a tithe from him. That is important. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm, I'm going to read some of the verses. I'll kind of um, summarize a number of the verses as well. But it says that tells that story about Melchizedek going out to meet Abraham after the defeat of the kings. And the name Melchizedek means, first of all, king of righteousness. Melchi is king and Zedek is righteous in Aramaic and Hebrew. And he's also called the king of Salem. Now you might know about Jerusalem, right? So Jerusalem, that's what the city was called at the time of Abraham, just plain Salem. And Salem means peace. So this priest was a king of righteousness and he was the king of peace. Now, it says that he didn't have a dad or mom. That's chapter 7, verse 3 of Hebrews, saying he didn't have a dad or mom. Well, it doesn't mean that he didn't have a mom or dad. What it means is that they had no record of his genealogy. So they didn't know who his father and mother were. And um, as a consequence, he was just kind of this guy who appeared out of nowhere. All Jews, they were very concerned about their genealogies. In fact, when they came back from captivity in Babylon, those who were going to serve as priests had to prove that they were connected to the proper genealogy because that was only one family that was allowed that, uh, that privilege. So genealogies were very important. And here we have a priest that pops out of the middle of nowhere with, with no evidence of who he was or, or even afterward. Like there's just no information about Melchizedek. The writer to the Hebrews says, ooh, like that's like the son of God who in reality is a priest forever, always has been, always will be. It's like a little bit like that priest nobody knew about otherwise and had a no genealogy life, no dad or mom, at least on the records. Now, how great was this Melchizedek? Well, he was so great that Abraham gave him a tenth. Now, if you were a Jew, you would give a tenth, a tithe, to support the work of the priests, of the Levites. The Levites were members of the family of Levi. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. Um, his family was responsible for spiritual things, and they got that responsibility. Um, one of the things they did was after the golden calf incident, remember where people started worshiping a false god, 
God, Moses said, like, who's on God's side? And the Levites stood up and they were on God's side and God had them kill um, thousands of their brothers who were living in an immoral way in that moment. They, they were ready to risk their own lives for the Lord. And so it ended up being that this was the family that was chosen to serve in the temple. And this Levi, whose dad was Jacob, whose dad was Isaac, whose dad was Abraham, and Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek, what the writer to the Hebrews says is that actually Levi, the one who received the tithe for centuries after, in a way gave the tithe to Melchizedek because he was still in the body of Abraham in, in a sense. So he was great in that way. And Melchizedek was great in that he's the one who blessed Abraham. He says, well, you know, it's the greater that blesses the lesser. So Melchizedek, honored in significant ways, gets paid the tithe, blesses Abraham, now, if perfection could have been attained, perfection. So in the Greek, this is the picture of reaching a goal or not getting close, but actually arriving. So reaching the goal. If people in the Old Testament could not reach their goal through the Levitical priesthood, through the tabernacle, through the sacrifices, through all of this, well, if it could have been achieved through all these things, why would we need another priest of a different sort? But in fact, the old covenant could not achieve, get people to their goal. And so now the implication is we do need another priest, like a priesthood where this could work, where people would not just get theoretically close, but they would actually arrive. And so now we say, okay, well, I guess that makes sense, but... God's the one who set up the Old Testament priesthood. How could the implication be that this was in some way incomplete? And we'll talk a little bit more about why that was. It wasn't God's fault, that's for sure. But God himself had predicted in Psalm 110 that there would be another priest of a different sort, a priest in line with Melchizedek. So the writer to the Hebrews is not the first one that talked about a special priest in the order of Melchizedek. In fact, this had been God's plan for a long, 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 long time. And the writer to the Hebrews is just reminding his readers of that. So here's the deal. The Lord Jesus was not a descendant of Levi. Does that mean he can't be a priest? No, because he can be a priest since we have the example of Melchizedek who was a priest and wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And God says there would be someone who would come who would be in the order of Melchizedek. And so here we have it, a priest like Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, who is not a priest because he was born to a priest, but he is a priest because of his nature. Jesus, in reality, is eternal. Melchizedek, no genealogy, is an image of what this now authentically eternal priest would be. And so that former regulation about the priests and the temple and the sacrifices and all of that, verse 18 of chapter 7, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. It never got anyone to their goal. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Okay, so imagine that you were living in that first century AD, and the Sinaitic law, the priesthood, the temple had been a part of your life since you were a little kid and the, a part of the live, lives of your ancestors for 1,500 years. So 
So after you hear what the writer to the Hebrews says about the inability of this old covenant to get you to your goal, what emotions do you think you're feeling? What thoughts are going through your mind? Can you imagine thinking like, okay, so what was the point then? Could you ima imagine feeling tricked, uh, deceived, confused at least? For the Lord to explain the inabilities of the Old Covenant could very well for a Jew have made them think, what in the world? So what's left? Now remember, like, why is it that the writer to the Hebrews would focus on saying, here's the inadequacies of the Old Covenant and here is the beauty of Jesus, the new. Remember from the very beginning, we talked about how the Jewish audience was tempted to love angels, be more interested in them than in Jesus. And we said, maybe that wouldn't be the thing that we would naturally kind of gravitate to, but are there other things that we would value more than Jesus? We'd be tempted to love more than Jesus. What the writer to the Hebrews is doing is taking on those things that would have attracted Jews away from Jesus in his day. And one of them was that they were drawn back to their old religion. And why would that have been? Well, they were being persecuted. And when they were persecuted, particularly by their own people, it would be for leaving or for giving the impression that Judaism had no legitimate place anymore, which of course was not the case. Judaism was the very thing that Christianity was built on. This, these were the promises in Judaism and Christianity was the fulfillment. But if you've got a bunch, bunch of your friends threatening to hurt you because you're saying that, can you imagine why you might be tempted to go back to Judaism to say, well, I know that came from God, so maybe I'll just go with what these other people are saying about what it means and then I won't have to worry about losing my property or whatever, being persecuted. There was a huge pressure to deny Jesus. So the writer to the Hebrews is telling them, okay, like, it's true that that played a role, the priests, the temple, the sacrifices, but this was never the way that people could actually get to God, to get into a right place with God. These things played a role. They, they pictured what was to come, but they weren't actually the thing that came. I mean, in some ways, it's, I don't know if you've had children and you have like a picture or an advertisement online or something for ice cream and then you get close to the restaurant where the ice cream is and you tell the kids oh um here you can just have the picture uh, we're gonna go home no way right if children have a choice between a picture of ice cream and ice cream they, they want the ice cream and that's kind of what's going on here there's this picture that had been painted for all of these years, but the real thing, Jesus, was now was now here. So let, let's talk a little bit more about this. We're, we'll go on in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 7. He says that this priest, this special one, this Melchizedek-like priest, this Jesus, was made priest with an oath. So God himself says, this one is my priest. And it wasn't just because he was the child of someone else. So he was special in that regard. Now, with these others who would have children and they would become priests, there had to be a lot of those priests because they kept on dying, right? Like in the Old Testament, you'd have a lot of priests because the one would die and then another, then death, then death, then death, then death. And he says that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus has a permanent priesthood. He's never going to stop. Death does not have power over him. 
So there, there was an enemy, death, that had been defeated in Christ. Does that matter? Listen to this. Because he has a permanent priesthood, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It matters to be a permanent priest because now you can save completely. You can get people to their goal. Now, he goes on to explain what makes Jesus uh, capable of doing this, that he's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, right? He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sin, so the other priests died. The other priests were also sinners, right? The wages of sin is death. Jesus did not have his own sin. And so he's superior. Perhaps you have friends who present themselves as Christians, but they might say something like this. Jesus is important, but it's also important to move beyond Jesus. My salvation is taken care of. I need to focus on other things like living a godly life and caring for others and making a difference in our world. How would you respond to that? It's important to move beyond Jesus. It's always hard to know exactly what's going on in someone's mind, but I attended a funeral a number of years ago where the spiritual leader who was speaking did not talk about Jesus at all. After working to connect a few dots, and, and first of all to know that as there are many who will talk about being in a relationship with the Lord because they made a decision to accept Jesus, it was an act of their will, and they'll try to nuance it a little bit, but they'll essentially say the reason that I'm a Christian is because I decided to invite Jesus into my life. But first of all, we would recognize that so many of those individuals, they really do love Jesus. They are Christians, but they're maybe not talking about how it happened in the proper way. There can be a mentality that once you're in, once you're a Christian, well, that's, that part is taken care of. Jesus kind of has done his work and he saved you. He paid for all of your sins. So now it's time to move beyond Jesus. And what do you move beyond too? about working to live a godly life, that sermons and messages are focused primarily on sanctification, or here's a godly thing to do, or here's how you can do better at this, or this doesn't make sense, does it, when we do this, but let's do this, right? Where there's a focus on how to live out a Christian life. Now, we know that living out a Christian life is absolutely in line with the will of God. But the impression can be given that Jesus isn't that critical anymore. He's not the focus. He's kind of in the history and that the way you live out a Christian life is by seeing how it makes sense. And so, okay, that, I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is special for you because he's always alive to intercede for you now and in five minutes and tomorrow and the day. So what is that presuming? Why would I need Jesus to intercede for me now in five minutes and tomorrow? And there's a presumption that we every day struggle with sin. In other words, the battle for spiritual proper behavior it's not just a question of, I need to understand this better. And once I see that it makes sense, okay, I'm all in with you, Lord. The problem is that we have a sinful flesh that hates that. That gets us to do things that we ourselves do not want to do. The fact that every day we sin. 
Every day we have something to confess. Every day Jesus is stepping in between us and the Father saying, you must forgive me because I, Jesus, died for his sins, for my sins. I need an intercessor every day. Jesus is that important. He's properly the focus of everything we preach and teach about. All of our sanctified Christian living growth is in the end connected to the reality that in Jesus, for my sins today, which I will confess today, I have been forgiven. Now, the writer to the Hebrews is not done. Chapter 8, he goes on to talk about this place that they were so familiar with as Jews. First he says, yeah, we do have a high priest like that, this perfect forever high priest who is in heaven, right? And he serves in heaven, and he calls heaven the true tabernacle. Now, this is really cool because he'll go on in a little bit to say that the reason the tabernacle, the tent that the Israelites had as they were wandering, and then finally they built a, an actual temple, Solomon did, but that, that, was, that was designed to look like or to picture heaven, which is why Moses was told, now, don't mess this up at all. You have to build it exactly as I told you, that the, the tabernacle of the temple was picturing heavenly realities that God was painting for his people in understanding of how this all worked. So he tells us a little bit more about what was going on on earth, which then had a heavenly reality. Priests, they're appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Now, if Jesus was on earth, the writer to the Hebrews says, he, he would not be a priest because there were already people who were offering sacrifices in the temple, those that God's law had demanded. That temple they were serving in was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And that's why Moses was told, don't mess this up. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is actually in heaven. This isn't the copy where people were doing things in order to picture what was finally the real power, that coming Savior who really would pay for sin. This wasn't the picture of an animal dying and blood being shed and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant to allow a high priest to come in to that most holy place to stand in the presence of God and not die, because that's what humans deserve when they go in the presence of God, not die, because he was carrying blood, which God saw as representing the blood of Jesus, which who would suffer the punishment for our sins, so that because of Jesus' blood, now I can be near to God and be in his presence and not be afraid and live with him forever, right? Like, this was all a picture of what was going on. Now, why would it be wrong for a Jew in the writer to the Hebrews day to say, but oh, come on, like, let me just go back to Judaism. I don't want to be persecuted for being a Christian. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. There was something wrong with the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. But God's the one who designed it. How can there be something wrong with it? Verse 8, God found fault with the people. The people. They had proven themselves incapable of keeping God's laws. Like, what would we say about ourselves? Have, have you proven yourself faithful keeping God's laws? We disobey. 
they disobeyed. And some of them, they fell completely away from the Lord. So much so that God brought destruction. The Babylonians came in and destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. And Jeremiah, who was the prophet at the time, was reflecting on this and how the people had broken God's covenant. And God uses Jeremiah to say in verses 8 through 12, there's going to be a new covenant. And it's one that is going to be written on your hearts. It will be deep internal. It will, it will announce that the Lord has forgiven your sins. He has taken them away. Yes, this was what the old covenant was anticipating. There was going to be this new thing that would come. The old, all it did is highlight the reality of sin. Sacrifices needing to be made again and again and again. But the sacrifice would be the actual payment for sin. And so then in chapter 8, he finishes off by saying, since we've got a new covenant, the old one's going to be obsolete, and what's obsolete is going to disappear. And sure enough, the Jewish uh, city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The temple sacrifices stopped, and there is no need for them anymore. Because the sacrifice came, and it's all done. Now, if we recognize the inability of the Old Covenant to actually get people to their goal, to cross the finish line, then what was God teaching people through his Old Covenant? Well, one thing was that it required the shedding of blood for sin to be forgiven, which ultimately would be in Jesus. What he was showing is that human beings cannot by them, themselves come into the presence of God. If they tried, they would die punished for their sins. The fact that there would be a substitute, Jesus, for me... Like so many beautiful lessons in the Old Covenant. Or did that mean that people who died when they were living under the Old Covenant didn't go to heaven? As they, people who knew that all of this was picturing a Messiah to come went to heaven the same way that you go to heaven. Trust in the Messiah. For them, it, he hadn't come yet. For you, he has already come. We're saved, New Testament believers, Old Testament believers, in exactly the same way. But what the writer to the Hebrews is doing is telling New Testament believers who are tempted to think that the Old Testament approach was intended to be forever, perpetual. No, that was a, it was the picture of the ice cream cone, not the ice cream cone. When you've got the ice cream, you go back to the picture, you're rejecting reality. Now, he tells us about what happens in the temple. We are not as familiar with what happened in the temple as people back in the day were. But he kind of describes what was in there, what was in the temple. He said there were two major sections in the Jewish temple. The first was a holy place, and in the holy place was an altar of incense and a table that had bread on it, and then a candelabra. And then there was a big curtain. That's the one that was ripped in half when Jesus died. Behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the visible representation of God on earth. So if you went past that curtain into the where the ark was, you would die unless you brought with you blood. Now at the time of Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there anymore. Our presumption is that it was carried off in the Babylonian captivity or destroyed in that process. We, we really don't know. But unless you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, then you know. But, but um, for real what happened, we, we really don't know. The imagery, though, going into the presence of God, it was still in place in Jesus' day. He says there's so much to talk about with regard to what was inside the temple, but let's not talk about that right now. Let's, let's go on just a little bit further. The priest would go into that most holy place once a year. 
And the fact that it could only happen once a year meant that the door wasn't wide open. And the writer to the Hebrews says that's what God was teaching, that there wasn't a clear path into the presence of God at that point. There were all of these outward ceremonies, and they showed that there was something that was yet to happen. The, the, the things in themselves were not able to clear the consciences of the worshipers, that what would only have the power to clear the conscience would be what they were anticipating. Jesus Christ himself, listen to this, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. So he went into heaven, and not with the blood of bulls or calves, but with his own blood into the most holy place, and he got eternal redemption for it. That means for you, you have been set free from your sin forever. The blood of Christ cleanses, verse 14, our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. His blood actually did it. Cleansing our consciences from actions that would bring deserved death so that we can serve. Now, when the writer of the Hebrews earlier rebuked his readers about their spiritual immaturity, remember we talked about that at the beginning, there was this ideal of faith. This is what identifies those who are truly mature, patience. This identifies those who are truly mature, promises that are yet to be inherited, and that we have that eternal hope, the promise of eternal life, anchored in the Holy of Holies, where the blood was sprinkled in order to let humans come into the presence of God. We have confidence about the future because Jesus has forgiven our sins. So now imagine a, a Christian who is looking at his own life and he sees so much that is lacking. He's struggling. He wants to serve the Lord, think first of others, love God more than earthly pleasure, ready to sacrifice for the truth. He says, I want to have those attitudes, but I feel so weak. What could we share in reply? So that Christian is seeing the actions that he or she wants to do. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. The blood of Christ cleanses our consciences so that we may serve the living God. So that. When your conscience is clean, you are empowered, motivated. You can't help but serve the living God. It's, it's guilt, it is unrecognized sin, it is the evil that you might remember from so many years ago or that you might be remembering from less than 24 hours ago that keeps us from being excited about serving the Lord. We just feel guilty to know that you have been permanently and forever forgiven and not just with outward actions, like those are washed away, or the bad words that came out of your mouth, those are washed away. What he, what he says is that God cleanses our consciences. The innermost part of who we are has been washed. And if that is clean, there is nothing left to clean. And if you are clean, there is nothing holding you back. You are eager to take your moments and your days and use them for endless praise of the one who has given everything so that you might be free suddenly to serve your neighbor, to show loved, your loved one's care and concern, to be eager to talk to other people about Jesus, like all these things, you're just, you, it, you can't keep it in. <laughs> that is the joy. And 
what you're looking forward to for the future also plays a huge role in that. The fact that you know you're going to be in heaven someday. And that's where the, the chapter 9 in Hebrews goes on. He says, wow, Jesus is the, he's the go-between of this new covenant the, the assurance of forgiveness that the old covenant was ultimately anticipating through all of its sacrifices. And in the end, it's, it's like a will. So a will that someone writes out doesn't go into enforce, doesn't go into force until the person who wrote it out died and Jesus died. And so the promise, the covenant that he has made with us is in force now, right? Of course, he came back to life as well. And um, that in going to heaven and bringing his sacrifice there, all things important were made clean. All sins have been forgiven. And he doesn't need to keep going like the priest once a year. It was done and it was done once and it was done for all time. He doesn't have to suffer anymore. Nope, he did it once. And when he does show up a second time, he is going to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He is going to bring us body and soul to heaven and, and that's what gives us such perspective on the now. It's that, it's that hope again, anchored in the Holy of Holies where forgiveness was won. When you know that your eternity is secure, you're going to live forever. You can't help but use your time to honor the Lord. That's getting to your goal. That's not simply being close but that's crossing the finish line. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us that what matters most, what is the evidence of authentic Christian spiritual maturity, is actually appreciating just how marvelous our Savior is. Strengthen that conviction in our hearts and use it to motivate and empower Christian service of all sorts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.